Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Welp, here we are this week. It's um, April Fool's Day week. Hopefully people didn't do silly things on April Fool's Day. Remember the stupid shit we used to do in elementary school on April Fool's Day? Like I remember we we used to do something like put put paper clips in our teeth to make it look like we had braces all of a sudden. We were like, I don't know, eight. Stupid stuff when we were kids. Then as you get older, the pranks got a little more elaborate, but I'm I'm glad to say that now that I'm over 40, we kind of did away with the prank thing. Even though my husband does some pretty silly things. There's a video I posted last year of him from a couple years ago playing the harmonica, and it is absolutely hilarious. It was posted on Facebook. And if I could figure out a way to post it on other social media, I would because it's, it's funny. <laughs> oh, man, he, he can be foolish sometimes, but it's good. Laughter is good like medicine. Anyway, so this week, um, this this edition, I wanted to focus on the border and what's happening, given Donald Trump's decision to threaten shutting down the border. Now, there is a legitimate problem going on. I mean, there, the, the number of crossings down there in Texas, this, um, you know, we saw pictures of, of these tens of thousands of people been trying to cross the border illegally down the El Paso area. And that's a problem. I've never denied that there wasn't a problem going on. I don't believe it's a national, a national emergency for the president to abuse his executive powers. It's a whole different thing. But there's a problem, and there has been for years. There has been. But when the president had the opportunity to address this with Congress being in power for two years, he had Republicans on both House and the Senate side, he didn't. The priority was something else. It was on tax reform. They tried for health care, and they blew that. So, you know, it's um, it's turned... I, I've always believed that the president doesn't really want to fix this problem because if he did, he'd have a lot more thoughtful policy as opposed to just this demagogic rhetoric threatening kinds of crazy things. So my guest this week um, is a uh, really smart guy. Like I'm, I like to bring on experts who know what they're talking about. So to, to enhance the conversation, because I think it's important for people to learn, you know, there's a lot of BS going on. So we have some facts. So this week I'm bringing on uh, Ryan Berg. He's a, an American Enterprise Institute scholar, PhD, PhD from Oxford, by the way. And he specializes in narco trafficking, uh, transnational crime. Uh, you know, he's a Latin America foreign policy expert. So I thought he'd be a good person to bring on to talk about what the hell's going on in Central America, what the impact would be if Donald Trump actually tried to close the border, and maybe what are some other policy solutions that the Trump administration should be working on as opposed to what Trump is doing now. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Ryan Berg, Dr. Ryan Berg is going to come on after I do my little monologue. He'll be on uh, to talk a little bit more in depth about what's going on in Central America and how it impacts us every day. But before I get to that, I want to talk a little bit about a couple other things that are going on in the news. So Trump, obviously, he's been doing these victory laps claiming that he's exonerated and the Mueller report is like so yesterday, but it's not. And this is just the beginning. It looks like 
The Mueller report's not going to be released in full to Congress this week, as Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler requested. They're allegedly working on it because they want to redact some things and make sure that certain people who are not indicted, who not get in trouble, that their private privacy is respected, blah, 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 blah. So the bottom line is we're not going to see it this week. It's going to be in a couple weeks, not months. All right, we'll see. It's just really the beginning of this political fight. Last week I had on Ellie Honig and Mimi Roca, both excellent lawyers, excellent legal experts who both worked for the Southern District of New York, which is one of the most powerful U.S. attorney's offices in the country. And they both said, look, we need to see this Mueller report to put everything in context. The president running around spiking the football really is premature. So we don't, you know, it's um, the, the legal battles, I think, on this are just beginning. And but we still have to wait and see. We still have to wait and see. I don't know if, you know, leave it to Trump to kind of blow the political capital he might have had by overstating what the Barr letter actually meant. I mean, Bill Barr had to write like three letters clarifying what his original letter said. You know, okay. It's a mess. It's a mess. But there's uh, more work to be done there. But we have to be patient. We have to be patient. I know it's already been over almost, what, two two years? <sighs> a couple more weeks. <laughs> We'll finally see what's in the Mueller report, I hope. Um, Trump is claiming that the Republicans are now the party of health care. I don't know if anyone saw his press conference last week, his little impromptu press conference at over on the Capitol. And that was news to Republicans. <laughs> what? We're the what? Party of health care? Oh, God, not this again. I mean, Republicans have had nine years to try to either get rid of Obamacare and repeal it. Remember repeal and replace? When I worked for con- in Congress, that was like one of the main hallmarks of the Republican Congress was what a disaster Obamacare would be, right? And then you know, government-run health care, you can't have, you're, you're not going to be able to keep your doctor and all the problems with it. And there were significant problems. But we're nine years into this thing, folks. People are used to it. They've gotten past some of the kinks in it. It does need to be reformed, but good luck trying to get rid of it. And the Trump administration, they're trying to get rid of it. And they don't have a replacement. I, that was so frustrating for me for the, with, with dealing with the Republicans. Like, wh- guys, I understand that you think this is a shitty law. And I understand the government intrusion part of this and how it's going to throw insurance markets into flux. And it's going to you know, be a problem for private choice and quality of health care. I get all of those arguments. But damn it, you've had like 12 years now to come up with a freaking replacement. And they haven't. So Trump coming out declaring Republicans are now the party of health care shocked the shit out of a lot of people in the Republican Party, especially elected officials. They don't want to touch this. Good luck trying to message this to the American people. How are you going to take something away from them? You're just not. So he went around saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to be the party of health care and we've got a working group. They're working on it. No such working group exists. He made this up. He had a couple of conversations with some Republican senators. That does not make a working group. So no one is actively, well, I don't want to say no one, but there's nothing really concrete in place. So Trump is just bullshitting again, talking out his ass and putting Republicans into a really precarious political position here with this. Yeah. So there's that. So look, look for the replacement, the healthcare replacement, the Obamacare replacement. <laughs> oh my God, don't hold your breath. Oh man. 
Jesse Smollett still in the news. That whole thing last week, that all broke like after the podcast was done and released. But holy shit, what a turn of events for that. They, all the charges dropped and then the FBI is now investigating why the prosecutor in Chicago dropped the charges. Like it's uh, now now the city of Chicago wants Smollett to repay the $130,000 plus I think in um, investigative fees at a cost. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a mess. I don't know. I mean, I admit I'm an empire fan and I really like Jamal Lyon and I didn't want his character to go. This is just me being selfish. Take away all of the ethical part of this or the unethics, uh, unethical behavior of him putting in this false report and the whole hoax of all, all that. I'm just as a pure entertainment viewer of the show empire. I don't want to see him go. So I don't know what they're going to do now. He's exonerated. Apparently. I don't know what a, it's a mess though. That whole thing is a mess just a mess but the president had no business weighing in he was like demanding the fbi investigate and what is this blah, blah, blah. what are you doing also now the fbi is good again they were a bunch of deep state treasonous illegal acting conf- conflict of interest people before when they were doing their counterintelligence in counterintelligence investigation into your funky behavior with russia but oh now they're good oh, so frustrating so frustrating to deal with 2020 update. So the first reports came out, the fundraising reports. And this is important. I mean, maybe it's more important for those of us inside the Beltway who are political nerds and follow this stuff. But here's the bottom line. How much money a candidate raises tells you how robust their operation is, how much support they have, and whether their candidacy is viable. If you're not raising money, that means people aren't supporting you. So it is an indicator. So that's why a lot of us, we watch when these quarterly reports come out, who's raising how much money and why that matters. That's why when Beto O'Rourke and Bernie Sanders raised five and six million dollars in the first 24 hours of their announcement, they couldn't wait to put that out because it shows that you have all this excitement. People are donating money in small dollars. Well, um, so the first reports are out and some people, uh, I don't know by now, this is only a day after the reports, only a couple of people have actually reported them. And my new kind of favorite guy, Pete Buttigieg raised like $7 million. That's pretty good for a virtual unknown. I mean, he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I never heard of the guy until he ran for president. And even then I was like, who? So... It wasn't really until the CNN town hall that he re- that he was given national exposure. And the more I read and hear from him and watch his interviews, yeah, he's an impressive guy. He is. I, I said it last week. I'm going to keep an eye on him. I don't think that he is necessarily ready to be president. Um, you know, first people have to learn how to pronounce his name, for goodness sakes. I thought Setmayor was tough. <laughs> Buttigieg. Oh, my goodness. But he's, he's self-deprecating about it. So is his husband. It's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. So part of what else you need besides money, well, when you have money that allows you to build a ground operation, get out the vote efforts, you have volunteers, you can pay for people on the ground to get the word out about you. Also, you know, for buying ads and social media and having, you know, you need money. And so far, Buttigieg has really only been kind of a news phenomenon. He hasn't really had much of an actual campaign apparatus because he didn't have the money to put one together. Now he does. 
And the reports are that, you know, the key early states, Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire, even Nevada, that they, he didn't really have people on the ground there. There's no operation, not as of right now. We'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks because you have to have people on the ground. He's playing catch up. The other folks out there, you know, Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, they, they've got people, even Elizabeth Warren, some people who they've been around a little while longer. They had money before they're, they have operations on the ground. He doesn't. So let's see. He's got to play a little bit of catch up with that. Um, who else? Who else? Oh, Joe Biden, Vice President Biden, my my favorite Democrat in this in this race. Well, not officially yet, but he's run into a couple Me Too issues. And I guess people were concerned about this because, you know, he's always a little touchy feely. He's an old school guy. You know, he's a little he's always hugging, kissing people. And and this woman from Nevada, this former state senator, came out. Uh, her last name is Flores, Lucy Flores. She wrote an op-ed talking about how he kissed her on the back of the head and rubbed her shoulders before she went out for a um, campaign event in 2014. It was backstage. And that it made her uncomfortable. And that it was inappropriate. Now, she didn't accuse him of sexual harassment or anything like that, but she just said it was inappropriate and that he violated her personal space. <sighs> okay. I mean, look. This Me Too movement is complicated because where do you draw the line? And, you know, every woman should be believed. I don't know if I completely agree with that because there are women who will abuse that. Um, I think we need to just we need to use our common sense. We really do. We need to use our common sense. We shouldn't automatically go after women if they make an accusation. But we also need to be, we also shouldn't just flat out believe everyone. What if they're making it up? What if they're using it as retaliation or using, you know, weaponizing this? I, I mean, it's a, it's a tough issue, you know, and there are a lot, but then what about the women who are legitimately sexually assaulted or harassed and were too afraid to come forward? I mean, it's hard because you want to be supportive of the, those women. You want to give them the confidence to come forward. But I just think that we need to be prudent. That's all. We need to be prudent. Biden came out. He made a statement. He said, look, I've never, I I don't believe I've ever done anything inappropriate, but I will listen. And I think that was a good response. It was a good response. Some of the other 2020 contenders are like, oh, we believe her. And, you know, he needs to answer for this. Well, of course, they're going to say that he's, he's their biggest threat to their pathway to, to the, (laughs) to the, um, nomination. So of course they're going to say that if they, they, you know, they can take him out, you know, he's the top dog, even though he hasn't officially announced yet. So I think this is a little bit of a bump in the road for him, um, but he needs to get in front of it. He really does. And I talked about this um, on CNN and it's also, you know, this whole creepy Biden video thing. People are like, I'll just Google that. And you see him, but you have to be careful. People edit things snapshots being photographs don't tell the whole story and I'll give you a perfect example there was a picture that went viral in 2014 of Joe Biden rubbing the shoulders of the new defense secretary Ash Carter's wife Stephanie and everybody used that as an example of oh look at creepy Joe Biden again feeling up people's wives you know it was like because the picture made she kind of looked uncomfortable well in light of this other woman this Lucy Flores who came out Stephanie Carter said, I have to write something and clear this up. And she wrote a piece 
online over the weekend where she said, look, there was nothing inappropriate going on here. Someone took a a photograph, a still shot from a video, made it look like it was inappropriate and it wasn't. She said they've been friends with the Bidens for years, her and her husband. They were friends with, with Jill and Joe Biden and that he was comforting her because she was really nervous and she'd actually taken a nasty spill on some ice earlier that day. So she was all disheveled. Well, you know, this is the day her husband's getting sworn in as defense secretary. So she was disheveled and she was a little, you know, and she appreciated his comfort. So she was like, so people stop exploiting this because that's not what it looked like. That's not how it happened. Well, you can believe her or not. But she came out and, and, and felt the need to have to say, hold on here. I mean, everybody's experiences are different, but I think we just need to keep it in perspective. And I don't want to play the game of whataboutism, but I mean, for goodness sakes, if that's if that's the worst thing compared to what we have in the White House, I'm sorry, I'll take it. I hate to do that, but, you know, give me a break here. Not saying I'm not justifying things if they're really wrong and appropriate. But I just think we need to not you know, say the sky is falling all the time because then it takes away waters down from the legitimate creep, sexual harassment, sexual assault perpetrators. So we'll see how Biden handles this moving forward. I mean, he's got other issues. Um, He's not necessarily progressive enough. His record on the crime bill and things in in the 90s. Remember, he's been around a long time. He was in office from the 70s. He's never really had a real job. He's been a professional politician. The upside to that is he knows what the hell he's doing, unlike what we have now. You're not going to have amateur hour there if he gets elected. I don't agree with all of his policies. I'm not a Democrat, but I can, he's bearable and I'll take him. So, so we'll see what happens with Joe Biden. Keep an eye on that and see if this runs into a problem for him. Something else I want to talk about a little bit is the security clearance issue. I've uh, talked about this in the past in past episodes. So if you haven't, go check them out. They're all available on iTunes and wherever you can download your podcasts. Um, But in past episodes, I've talked in depth about the security clearance fiasco and why that's important, why people should care. You know, security clearances are not just like you walk through a checkpoint and someone clears you into a secure building. That's not a security clearance. And the reason why I'm explaining that because I actually got into an argument with some idiot Trump supporter over the security clearance issue on Facebook. And this person honestly thought that it was just clearance into the White House, like where you go when you visit the White House, and they check you in. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's true. And I, it was like multiple messages back and forth before I realized that this person had no clue what a security clearance actually was. That's why they tell you don't argue with fools. Oh, man. But anyway, so now a security clearance is a government designation to have access to classified information. So a lot of people who work in the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, the FBI, law enforcement, even in the White House press office, if they're going to look at the National Security Council, anyone who has access or their job requires them to have access to classified information. You have to go through an investigative process where they look into your background to make sure that you don't have anything that could potentially make you vulnerable to um, espionage, to blackmail, to anything like that by a foreign power. 
or by not necessarily foreign power, but by anybody. So they run background checks. They go and they, they talk to your neighbors. They look at your work history. They look at your credit score, your credit report. Are you a gambler? Do you owe, you know, so-and-so, you know, do, are you, a, you know, do you have a bookie? Do you, are you a compulsive gambler? Do you have, um, are you irresponsible? Like these are all things they look into and they go pretty far back. I've mentioned this before. My husband's a federal officer and he gets, he has to go through security clearance renewal every couple of years. So these are serious things and it's to make sure that the best people are being entrusted with our sensitive information in the government. Makes sense, right? You don't want any schmo uh, down the street having access to this kind of stuff. Not everybody's cut out for it. Not everybody is worthy of it. Not everyone is qualified to have access to that information. Well, the story came out a couple months ago that Trump had installed some flunky of his in the Office of Personnel in the White House, specifically to carry out his request to override the recommendation of professional investigators and, and give security clearances to people that would not have qualified otherwise, including his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Yeah. And Jared Kushner was reading the presidential daily brief. That's like one of the most highly classified documents in the government. And this freaking guy, Jared Kushner, who has zero, zero experience in the government, zero business being anywhere near classified information, given all of his financial compromise such pit positions with his family businesses. Oh, please. I don't want to go off on that diatribe, but um, it's a problem. And Trump overrode the recommendation of professional security investigators. And now we find out that over, over two dozen people got security clearances that didn't qualify for them. Mm-hmm. Trump has that ability as president. He has that power to say, I don't care what you guys say. Give him a, he can show classified information to anybody he wants to. And God knows who he's shared that crap with. Who knows? You know? over the omelet station in Mar-a-Lago. Who the hell knows what he's talking about to whom? I mean, Donald Trump would never get a security clearance if he weren't the president. No way. No way. If you ever read, uh, read either check out justsecurity.org or lawfareblog.org. They have great analysis on this stuff. Um, I, I read those guys all the time. I have friends over there and, uh, you know, these are national security experts that have worked, you know, 20 plus years in, in, in the intelligence community. And they're just horrified, horrified by how irresponsible and reckless this administration is with secure information. It makes Hillary Clinton and that freaking email scandal look like child's play. Really? I mean, you know, the idea that the secretary of state is conducting government business and and sensitive information over a over a private server in her basement. Not cool, but there is no, no wrongdoing found that, the, the, you know, like this kind of stuff. Could you imagine? Ay, ay, ay. Well, why also does this matter? Well, this matters because the, the, the United States is not offering its best people in these really important positions because they can't attract good talent because Donald Trump is impossible to work for. You're risking your reputation. You're risking a lot to go work in this administration. And the handful of people who do know what they're doing over there, I can't imagine what kind of a nightmare it is to work in that White House. What a nightmare. And I'm going to give you another example of why not having your best people in these kinds of positions is a problem. Russia and China are 
enemies of ours. We have to deal with them. But believe me, they are waiting for the United States to slip up. When the United States does not assert herself globally and there's a power void, that void gets filled and it gets filled by not so good people like Russia and China. China for years has been quietly buying up rare earth minerals and mines all over the world. They control like 90% of the rare earth minerals. What are those? Those are things that go into like our cell phones and communication satellite devices, important things that we need, components. And they're going to, they control 90% of those rare earth minerals across the country. I mean, across the world. That's a problem. These are asymmetrical warfare type ways of trying to gain influence and advantage over the United States. Um, not necessarily with like direct um, military power, but it's creeping up. They've also been setting up consulates and embassies in the Caribbean. When major hurricanes have come through and destroyed areas of the Caribbean, guess who was the first one there to build, rebuild schools and soccer fields and homes? China. Yes. They are buying influence with other countries, smaller countries around the world, so they can build an alliance when it comes to the UN and other strategic um, decisions, they have an advantage. So you remember when we built that school for you guys? You don't act like quid pro quo doesn't happen in every aspect of our lives, including global relations. Well, Russia's doing similar things. While Donald Trump is yelling at his shadow, okay, about Bob Mueller, he, Russia is running around sowing all kinds of chaotic seeds. Now they've moved on to rot to Africa. A story in the New York Times the other day was talking about how Russian military influence in African nations has increased significantly over the last couple of years. They have been outsourcing security training, security personnel, They've been buying up gold and diamond mines in countries in Africa in exchange for security training and arms sales. They helped a general in Libya with some issues there, controlling the government and and controlling oil markets. There, the Central African Republic just installed a Russian national security advisor. Sub-Saharan countries like Niger, Mali, Chad, they are contracting out to Russian, you know, like kind of like our Blackwater, you know, like private security guys. They are contracting out to them to help them, quote, get rid of ISIS and Al Qaeda. And Russia is happily engaging and they are sowing the seeds of their own military presence throughout Africa. So what they're doing is they're gaining an advantage in the southern from the southern flank of NATO, of our NATO countries. Remember, NATO was created to keep the USSR at bay. So there's, you know, when, so what are, what is our country doing? What the hell are we doing? Donald Trump's running around being an isolationist and Russia and China are creeping around the world doing all kinds of shit while we can't you know walk straight because Donald Trump is a completely incompetent president too busy having a love affair with fucking North Korea. It's insane. So that's why those kinds of things matter. Well, 
you know, something else that matters is definitely what's going on down at the border, which is why I wanted to bring uh, an expert on. And just a couple of statistics. This idea of closing the border is insane. I mean, maybe it sounds like a good throwaway line, like Mexico is going to pay for the wall, a good throwaway line at a rally to the less educated nativist rabid dogs out there. But in the real world, that shit would be crazy. It would be really, really disruptive. I don't think the average person understands how involved, how intertwined our economies are with Mexico and Canada. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce over the weekend came out with a fact sheet to remind people of how important our relationship is with Mexico economically. Because Trump started this stuff about, you know, he's, he's threatened this, I'm going to close the border crap before. But now it's looking like he's more serious about it. Maybe, who knows? I don't know. But I can tell you that people who know better are like, please don't do this. Do you know what kind of chaos this would cause? San Isidro, that is the border crossing down south of San Diego, over there by Tijuana. San Isidro is the biggest passenger land port in the Western Hemisphere. The amount of traffic that goes back and forth through that port through that port of entry is insane. On an average day, 120,000 commuter vehicles, 6,000 trucks, 63,000 pedestrians use that gateway a day. And most of them are going to and from jobs. You know, there's a lot of, it's kind of like going from New York to New Jersey, you know? When we don't live on the border, you don't realize how how much synergy there is between the U.S. and Mexico. There's a lot. In the, the amount of money, it's, it's insane. The border was closed for five hours last November because there was like a riot down there. Remember, there's a bunch of migrants that rushed the border. They shut the border down for five hours just to get things under control. The U.S. Chamber said that cost $5 million. $5 million, like a million dollars an hour. That was just for that day. Imagine Laredo, Texas is another one. I think it's the second largest port um, where commerce goes back and forth in the country with Mexico. 16,000 trucks a day. 1,400 rail cars a day move goods across that border. So what is this going to look like? We export more goods to Mexico than we do to China, like by 140 billion more. Mexico is one of our largest trading partners. That's why we had NAFTA. That's why we have NAFTA the, the, you know, part two, <laughs> whatever the new one's called now, um, you know, we import, we import $300 billion. And most of that comes by truck and train. We can't close the border. Is this guy insane? 80% of the stuff that comes through there is by truck or rail. It's $207 billion worth of goods. So this is nuts. The chamber also says it could, if a long-term impact, it could screw up our supply chain. That's a lot of things people don't know, too. Manufacturers in the United States, they they have a lot of parts and things made in Mexico and they bring them into the U.S. for assembly, especially the auto industry. They don't keep things in supply here because they it's cheaper to have them made the kind of as needed in Mexico. 
Also, with labor unions and things, labor costs are more expensive in the U.S., so they make them in. It's cheaper to make them in the parts in Mexico and then bring them into the U.S. for assembly. So that would screw up the supply chain. It could impact five million jobs. It could tank the economy. I mean, it's nuts. So Donald Trump better think about this again. So I don't know, but I don't know what he's going to do. You know, the more people tell him don't do it, the more he's like a child and he's like, I'm going to do it anyway. What are you going to do to me? It's bad. You know, he acts like a petulant child. It's he's incorrigible. Absolutely incorrigible. But his impulsive, very vindictive, petulant behavior has real world consequences when you're president and affects millions of people and billions and billions of dollars of commerce in the U.S. We've got to do something about what's happening there. But closing the border isn't it. My husband and I, some of you, by the time you listen to this, we're actually going to be in Mexico this week celebrating his birthday. I hope I can get back into the U.S. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know how they I mean, even if they shut the border, they, there would be a whole, all kinds of diplomatic uh, legal problems with American citizens having a right to go back into the U.S. Like it's it would be a nightmare. It really would. So without further ado, I might as well bring in bring in the expert to talk about this. Enough of my uh, my talk about it. I know a little bit about a little bit, but um, Dr. Ryan Berg from AEI is going to talk in more depth about it. So next up, Ryan Berg talking the border. As promised, I am bringing in one of um, one of one of the experts I've talked about that I think it's so important to bring onto the program so that people can learn more in depth and factual information about hot topics and what's going on in the southern border in Central America is a hot topic. So today I'm happy to welcome Dr. Ryan Berg. He is an AEI scholar and research fellow. He specializes in the areas of narco trafficking, transnational crime, Latin American foreign policy. He's also a Fulbright scholar and he has a PhD from Oxford. So I think he's the right guy to talk to. Dr. Burke, thank you so much for joining me today on Honestly Speaking. Great. It's great to be with you. So as someone who studies this region of the world, what were your initial thoughts when you heard the president recently say again that he was serious this time about shutting down the border as a potential answer to the chaos that's going on down there as we speak. What did you think of that? Well, at first I didn't know whether to believe it because, like you mentioned, this is something that Trump has threatened to do on multiple occasions, specifically with um, uh, with respect to the migrant crisis at the southwest border. And so uh, at first I wasn't quite sure whether this was uh, another announcement of U.S. policy on Twitter that would later be walked back right. uh, or whether this was actually for real. And then I actually saw that the, uh, the State Department put out an official statement uh, conforming to the, the the Twitter message, uh, which started this all off. So, so that was at the point then that I realized, okay, this is for real now. This is, you know, the third or fourth time that he's threatened this and and it's actually, uh, for real now. Um, and you know, my, my immediate reaction once I, once I knew that there was some veracity to this claim was, uh, this is precisely the wrong thing to be doing. Um, this is, again, another instance of Trump trying to link foreign aid uh, to specific outcomes in particular countries rather than seeing foreign aid as something that's far more holistic, something that could possibly be an end in itself, 
something um, far more than just measuring the effects of foreign aid uh, in terms of the impact it has on migration. So just for the purposes of people who don't really understand how foreign aid works, how... A, how much money are we talking about? I'm assuming in the greater scheme of things, it's probably relatively small amounts of money. Um, And B, what kind of uses does that foreign aid actually go to? Because I know that there's some dispute over um, how well foreign aid is used. Sometimes when you have corrupt regimes, the foreign aid doesn't go for the purposes it was intended to. So is there some merit perhaps to Donald Trump dangling foreign aid or the, or pulling it back? Uh, is there some merit to that if they're not using it properly? Um, or, or no. But first, what is it supposed to be used for? First, uh, so we're talking about the countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador here. Right. Between fiscal year 2017 and 18, there was roughly about $1.3 billion allocated to those countries, which are collectively uh, normally referred to as the Northern Triangle. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're talking about in terms of in terms of quantity. We're not talking about huge, huge sums of money relative to the, the United States foreign aid budget, because these are small countries, but we're still talking about a, a, a reasonably large pot of, of money. Um, foreign aid goes to goes to all sorts of things. I mean, sometimes it goes to governments. Uh, at times, um, it's funding uh, NGO groups on the ground. Um, it's funding uh, infrastructure projects in in countries. It's going to a number uh, of different things. Um, you mentioned the fact uh, for a sort of blowback effect or or a, an unintended consequences effect of, of foreign aid, and that that is occasionally uh, what we see. We can see that it, that um, presidents who come in uh, and political leaders who come in promising some sort of reform um, can occasionally mask the fact that they haven't done very much on the reform front, uh, prop up their regimes uh, uh, with with the use of of foreign aid and perpetuate themselves in power. Um, In terms of Trump's interest here, again, I I mentioned in my previous answer that I think his interest is specifically linking foreign aid uh, to stymieing the flow of migrants from from the Northern Triangle in Central America. And the evidence that foreign aid can deter migration is actually quite sobering. Uh, there was research done by, by a German think tank called the IZA Institute for Labor Economics a few years ago, um, and they basically found that if you can get countries to about an eight or 10,000 US dollars per capita GDP, you would stymie migration. People would no longer feel the need to migrate uh, for economic opportunity. And according to some World Bank figures in these three countries we're discussing now, you're pretty far from that target space. In El Salvador, you've got a GDP per capita of about 3,800 US dollars, Guatemala 4,400, and Honduras, the lowest of all, at about 2,400. So what for pretty Trump's poor very countries. specific purpose, yeah, yeah, very poor countries. And for, for Trump's very um, specific purpose here, You've got a long way to go before you hit that target. Well, something you mentioned that I think is important is that uh, a lot of these folks are are in fact economic migrants. They are coming to the United States for opportunity, and uh, I, you know, I I'm a pretty tough person when it comes to border security and our and, and fixing our immigration um, uh, laws because it, it, they are broken. And I've seen uh, some of the byproducts of that. Mainly, what we see now, it's just not it's being abused and it's not working. But you know, there's there are issues on both sides of it. You know, we have employers in the United States who are continually giving folks 
jobs that they shouldn't be and they're not penalized for it, then, you know, we need to have a guest worker program so that we do need labor in certain industries. And there's so many, I mean, it's multifaceted. There's a lot going on. But the idea that that people are leaving, they're fleeing these countries and they're claiming asylum because they fear, they have credible fear, which is the term that they use. Uh, is that, is, do you see an abuse of our asylum system being used here? Because people are really, yes, these countries have violence. Yes, they probably do fear for their lives, but it's really more an economic driver. Well, I think it's a bit of it's a bit of both. I mean, there are definitely people who are coming and abusing the system because they know that claiming credible fear is is a very easy way to get right. into the United States, um, and uh, it's quite likely that many of them have felt credible fear. I mean, these are we need to remember these are regions that are incredibly violent. They have murder rates that are well over thirty uh, per one hundred thousand. They're some of the most violent countries in the world. Uh, these countries are are major nodes uh, along the, the the trafficking networks from South America up through Central America into Mexico and eventually into the United States for all sorts of drugs. Um, and they have lack of economic opportunity. So there are a number of drivers. But there's also the fact that the United States economy is just towering over uh, both Mexico and and especially over Central America. I mean, Texas alone has an economy that's worth about 1.6 billion US dollars GDP somewhere in that region. So these this economy alone and then you branch out to the United States writ large is just towering over over Central America in addition to which you've got a number of people with family connections uh, in the United States and you have a whole lot of uh, migration drivers in play. Right. Uh, so what for, for some people, so for so if some of the foreign aid, it goes to, um, well, d- d- well, it goes to NGOs, it goes to direct services to try to keep people in their own countries and try to fix the problems that are going on there. Is that a simplistic way of explaining why it's important that we send foreign aid? Because some people say, well, why the hell are we sending all this money to these countries? And there's still, you know, all these people are still coming here, causing problems at the southern border. Then they come here and then they cost us money because it's economically not sustainable for the United States to have these, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people coming here illegally or coming here waiting for an asylum hearing and then they end up staying anyway um is there something different about this migration in the than in the past because it seems to me like you see a lot more families in 2014 it was unaccompanied minors because they found a loophole in the system to exploit that now it seems as though these caravans and these migration these these large migrations are family units is there am, am i wrong about that or is this is this something that's been going on for a while the same way it just seems like it's a little different this time you're right to pick up on the on the on the families angle. It's it's more uh, families than it is unaccompanied minors, as it was in 2014, to which the U.S. responded, of course, with the Alliance for Prosperity, right. which was a two point six billion dollar allocation for these same countries we're talking about now. Uh, now we're seeing a lot of families coming together because uh, there's news that has spread throughout the region um, that the U.S. has particular court rulings on the books. Uh, this is the Flores ruling, of course, yes. um, which prevents you know, the, the detention of, 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 of family units, I believe it is, for longer than, than 20 days. And because the administration is just so overwhelmed at this point in time, the system is so overwhelmed. 
uh, it can't cope with the number of families that are there. And so you have families being released into the United States that are given uh, court dates two, three, four years hence, and um, and they're not being tracked. They're not uh, being given ankle bracelets as uh, is done in some situations. And so uh, this is exactly the scenario that Donald Trump criticized during the during the presidential campaign and during the first part of his presidency, quite derisively referring to it as catch and release. Well, mm-hmm. we're, we're back in a situation where the administration and the country's resources have been so completely overwhelmed that we, have, we are back in a, in a situation of catch and release. So what do you think that the Trump administration could have done differently up until this point? It feels as though, you know, he's been carping about this. And, and I, you know, there are legitimate, I don't agree with a lot of what Trump does, but on immigration, there are legitimate grievances. But the problem is he's demagogued the issue so badly that no one's interested in really putting forth viable public policy prescriptions to fix it. What could they have done to try to fix this up until now, uh, up to this point, as opposed to just focusing on, uh, you know, building a wall? Because that building a wall what would not stop people from claiming asylum at legal ports of entry. So in your estimation, what could they or what should they have done to try to fix this that they haven't done up until now? Well, what the president's original plan was to partake in, in the Mexican president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, referred to as AMLO, uh, AMLO's so-called Central American Marshall Plan. And that was a, a $30 billion uh, investment in southern Mexico and the countries of the Northern Triangle, of which the United States was going to contribute about $5.6 billion. Now, the administration hasn't said anything, but I presume this announcement means that the administration's plans to participate in this very bold, very audacious move are, are, are off, um, are not on the table anymore. Um, you have a number of things that, uh, that the administration could do to, uh, to, to increase economic development uh, in Central America. And you, and you hear this when you listen to USAID Administrator Mark Green speak about uh, the point of development. He says it's called, uh, he, he, he often calls it the road to, to self-subsistence. Uh, uh, um, remittances still represent 15% of the region's GDP. There have been massive productivity losses, something like the average Central American produced 82% of what the average American worker did in the 1970s. Now it's closer to 55%. Um, you have a number of, uh, of free trade agreements that these governments uh, aren't leveraging to be able to uh, to grow. There's the CAFTA-DR, uh, which includes a lot of the countries of the region. It's been around since 2004. So that's like Dominican, Re- like Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, right? Who else is in that? Uh, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, all the countries that we're concerned with. Nicaragua is also a part of it as well. Uh, Panama is not. They have their own separate agreement with the United States. But basically the whole region is in. Uh, And then you have NAFTA or USMCA, of course, for Mexico. So you have pretty much the entire region uh, involved in in U.S. trade deals. But you can see certain countries taking advantage of that uh, tariff-free access to a large market like the United States um, in in much greater ways than, for example, the Northern Triangle. So 80% of their products come into the United States tariff-free. They haven't taken advantage of that. 
The other thing is we just have bad partners in the region. Um, a, a number of the countries in response to this move um, highlighted the, the great bilateral relationship they believe they have with the United States. Um, but if you look at what's going on in each individual country, um, it's, it's not particularly good. In, in El Salvador, they've just elected um, a brand new, very telegenic young president um, who was formerly a mayor of the largest city and capital, San Salvador, and he has connections with local gangs in addition to uh, possibly with transnational uh, organized crime figures in Honduras. You have uh, a president who's still in power after a very disputed and possibly rigged election. His brother was arrested in Miami not too long ago and accused of being one of the largest narco traffickers in Central America. In Guatemala, which sends a large number of immigrants, uh, of migrants rather, you've got um, a president who's working on dismantling the UN body, which was charged with, uh, with, with extirpating, uprooting some of these very deeply embedded organized crime networks. Um, after the civil war in, in Guatemala, that's called the CCIG, uh, the UN panel. He's working on kicking those people out of the country, and he's engaged in sort of democratic backsliding. So the U.S. does not necessarily have good, able, willing partners um, who, are, who are willing to cooperate on the ground with us in, in implementing some of, these, um, some of these policies in the region aimed at increasing security, uh, increasing economic development, and decreasing some of those uh, some of those migration factors. So that's interesting. So basically, we've got um, a, a, in El Salvador, we've got a guy that's chummy with drug kingpins. In Honduras, you've got a guy that's in there, um, possibly through rigged elections, and his brother's chummy with the drug traffickers. In Guatemala, you've got a guy that doesn't want anything to do with the anti-corruption efforts that are supposed to be in place to clean that country up um, from decades of of deeply rooted corruption there so how exactly so so then can you understand for the from for the other side for people who are like well what's what are we supposed to do then as the united states trump is going i we can't work with these people i'm not giving them any more money so then what's the what's the what should be the solution then how do we move forward when you have you can't trust the people you're working with yeah, I can. I, you know, I can see the. I can see the administration's uh, viewpoint on this one. But again, remember the, uh, the 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 answer to the question about where does foreign aid go? It doesn't right. always uh, involve government to government transfers. And so sometimes you're giving money uh, to NGO groups on the ground, international organizations who are doing good work independent of the particular political figures in a country. So if we look at a country like El Salvador. Um, there has actually been um, a reduced migration, dramatically so, from, from El Salvador. Most of the um, arrests at the border are occurring, according to Customs and Border Patrol, from uh, Guatemala and, and from Honduras. El Salvador has actually, actually dropped off precipitously, and one of the reasons is that they were able to reduce violence in a meaningful manner by doing some things like security sector reform, uh, further police trainings, focusing on things like human rights. Some of that stuff was done with uh, with money that was not from U.S. foreign aid. Some of it was done with with money that was from uh, previous cycles of, of U.S. foreign aid. Uh, and we've seen a dramatic number of uh, of uh, we've seen a dramatic rather re- reduction in 
migrants from, from El Salvador. And so this is something that's sort of independent of the current political leadership and political moments in each one of these countries, um, which could possibly serve as an example. And more, and more generally speaking, I just think one, the administration just before needs... You say, before you go on to that, I just want to mm-hmm. make the point that, yeah. you know, El Salvador is one of Trump's favorite places to attack because of MS-13. And he was, you know, railing against the these MS-13 criminal gangs and how they're coming over here in droves. And that's what we need to be afraid of. That's why we have to, you know, build the wall and all that. So it's interesting. I did not know that out of all of those three countries, El Salvador is actually the one that's been making the most progress in reducing the, the migration to the U.S. thanks to the efforts on the ground there and money coming from the U.S. I think that's a, a point that's not made enough. So I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that out. Continue on. Some other solutions. Yes, I think more generally, um, the administration needs to differentiate its approach. It needs to have an approach that is more more particular and more uh, more uniquely tailored to um, the individual conditions in each of these countries. I think too often we, even in in the nomenclature calling it the Northern Triangle, sort of group these countries together when in reality uh, they're they're experiencing much different. Um, challenges. Many of them have to do with insecurity, gang violence, and drug trafficking, issues with political leadership and economic development. Um, but then you have the differentiation. So, for example, in, in Guatemala, you have um, you have drought, you have other sorts of you know weather factors that are affecting things like the um, like the coffee harvest, mm-hmm. um, which is you know yielding much less in terms of its crop and 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 you know inducing people to uh, to leave. And so a more differentiated approach and a more finely tailored um, approach could be something that could really help the administration. Do you see any indication that um, outside of the White House, more like from the State Department and, and other more professional operations, the career people, do you see any movement with that? I mean, you mentioned earlier the um, the um, Central American Marshall Plan that was proposed by Mexico and how that looked to be, it was ambitious, but it looked to be somewhat of a, uh, of a possibility here with trying, similar to the Marshall Plan in Europe, you know, helping to rebuild different foundation, different kinds of democracies and governments, but just the basic concept of, hey, let's invest heavily in trying to develop these countries and create um, economic opportunity so folks will stay there. Um, but you said that that's no longer on the table. Uh, why do you think that was th- that was not, uh, no longer on the table? And do you see anything, any other movement anywhere else behind the scenes where people are working to actually come up with these types of solutions, independent of what the president's tweeting about? Right. Uh, with, with respect to the Central American Marshall Plan, um, I don't think Trump has actually said anything, to my knowledge, about the Central American Marshall Plan um, and whether it's whether it's still on or whether it's off. But given that its central focus was on the Northern Triangle, um, I presume that this announcement sort of supersedes uh, Trump's previous agreement to partake in that in that program spearheaded gotcha. by the Mexican president. So gotcha. I don't think he specifically addressed the, the, he, the Central American Marshall Plan. He probably Plan, doesn't know what it I'm is. Assuming, <laughs> right. I'm assuming that this tweet basically, you know, sort of Trump's excuse the, the, yeah. the pun there. 
trumps the uh, trumps the trumps the Central American Marshall Plan. Um, in terms of officials, you know, career and uh, and and political, uh, who are working on this, uh, yeah, in, in all of the meetings that I've had um, with people at state and at and at USAID, um, you know, they're still very honed in on Central America and and on the implications for policy there to, for the for the migrant crisis. Um, now it sounds like they're going to have fewer resources to work with, but policy-wise, they're still working on this very closely. They're still following it, tracking it very closely, um, and, and coming up with with policy solutions. Um, and I know that uh, people who are are in the administration already, and people who are nominated and hopefully soon uh, to go into the administration at USAID and at state, um, have talked to me uh, personally about taking this differentiated approach uh, to to the Northern Triangle and not treating this region uh, as, as a monolith, um, trying to, to tailor policies specifically uh, specifically to them. Um, and so hopefully, you know, if the Senate does its job and these people right. uh, get confirmed, we have the, the career and political people doing this, uh, serving as that as that institutional resource. So, so there's hope that there are adults in the room. I think that's reassuring to people because sometimes you just watch what's going on on a day-to-day basis and go who the hell's driving the bus because <laughs> uh, you know you, you just it, sometimes it feels like it no one um a couple more questions before i ask you what the and before we close um you mentioned that pro- productivity has been dramatically reduced in uh, a couple of these uh, central american countries in comparison to in the past what what do you think contributes to that that uh, reduction in productivity for workers there Good question. I, I, I know that um, you know security is one of the things that has driven out uh, quite a few uh, businesses. Um, it's driven out many uh, small businesses, medium medium-sized uh, enterprises. Um, and uh, if I had to, you know, point point the blame towards uh, at, at one thing particular in particular, it would probably be um, the lack of, of of security there. It makes it a very difficult. You know, environment to to operate in. In addition to which, you know, a lot of these businesses don't want to operate in an environment in which they have to pay bribes or in which sure. they know they're going to be extorted. Um, you know, the other thing is that much of the um, productivity or mu- many of the businesses in, in Central America, um, in my experience and in, in my travels through the region, um, are very very small. And these countries are missing what the World Bank calls uh, the missing middle. They lack the, the, the missing middle, sort of these, these middle-sized um, enterprises that are between the mom and pa shops and the multinational uh, organizations, the multinational right. corporations, rather. Um, you know, a lot, not a lot of them are highly technical. Uh, many of them lack the ability to scale. They lack seed funding. They lack the, the sort of formal education that's needed um, to be able to scale. The other thing is there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of over-regulation. Uh, in some of these countries, not a lot of people want to be um, operating a formal enterprise because it's just very, very uh, expensive to comply with the law, both in terms of uh, the tax structure, um, you know, formally setting up a business, making sure you have uh, investments done legally. And so yes, much it's not, it's not worth the, the hassle that's done. Right. It's just exactly. not, it's not worth the, the hassle that's done. Yeah. Much of the commerce that's done is either done in the gray or in the black zone uh, of, of informality because it's, it's, it's simply cheaper. 
so that moves me to Mexico um, in our final couple minutes, because it's important, I think, for people to understand our relationship with Mexico and what role they, they play in this and why closing down the border would be absolutely disastrous. Um, explain what closing down the border would look like. And how important, what role has Mexico been playing thus far in helping the United States? Have they been doing their part? Is there more for Mexico to do? And what would shutting down the border look like? Well, shutting down the border, I think, would be a pretty catastrophic idea, um, both both economically and, and from the security perspective. Um, first, from the economic, I've seen I've seen estimates that somewhere around um, uh, a million dollars uh, a minute or something like that an hour. crosses back and forth. Yeah, a million dollars an hour yeah. that crosses back and forth uh, uh, between the United States and, and and Mexico border. So you're talking about massive you know, amounts of of, of money. Uh, in commerce flowing and that, back and forth. And that statistic was just San Isidro, which is the, the border crossing down there south of San Diego. That doesn't count Laredo, El Paso, all the others. That was the, I saw 5.3 million was lost in the five hours the border crossing was closed in November when they had that riot down there. So that that's right. just, just a it's fraction. It's really difficult yeah. to imagine the, the proportion. Um, eventually, AMLO and and Trump are are going to clash. That that was my that was my firm belief. Um, you could only sort of prolong uh, this this moment of comedy for for, for so long before they uh, eventually have a meeting and 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 have a, a clash of ideas or, or they butt heads. Um, but this uh, closing the border would would uh, definitely end that sort of period of comedy between between AMLO and Trump mm-hmm. um, almost immediately because so far. Um, AMLO has paid very little attention to foreign policy. He's paid very little attention to the United States. And so the United States has been returning asylum applicants, making them wait in Mexico before it's their turn uh, to have their case heard. AMLO, um, despite a couple of uh, protests through his foreign ministry, you know, has said that this is a unilateral United States policy. He hasn't really created very much noise other than that. He's, he's, he's been pretty, pretty compliant. Um, with the with the Trump administration's demands, um, and he he could cause uh, a lot more trouble by not complying mm-hmm. with what the Trump administration would like him to do. Um, and closing the border is one very quick way to get his attention um, and to anger him. So I think that would bring the Trump AMLO um, uh, rivalry immediately to to to, to a head. And he's um, he's newly elected, yeah. right? He's only been in office. For a couple of months. That's right. He, he took uh, office on December 1st of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still very early in his mandate. He's very popular in Mexico. He's anywhere between 65% and I saw one poll, he's up to 86%. More popular than um, Trump. So he, he's, <laughs> he's immensely popular, far more popular than Trump. Um, and, and he's a real firebrand. And so um, he's, you know, he's somebody who could, uh, he's a wild card and he could totally challenge Trump uh, in a way that Trump is, is unprepared for. And so um, it would definitely be a move that would immediately bring Trump um, uh, into conflict with AMLO and 
nobody really knows what would happen in a scenario like that. That's, that's but, interesting. So you actually think that he has the potential to stand up to Trump on this? Because in the past, the United States has always had enough leverage. But I mean, we've never really been in such a hostile situation like we are right now, because Mexico really is a good partner for us in you know a lot of ways, despite what we see at the southern border. Um, you know, our economies are intertwined in ways that are indispensable. Um, they're our third largest trading partner. So I just don't think people realize that and what a disruption it would be to our supply chain. I, I talked about this a little earlier in my monologue uh, in the run up to our interview about the amount of money and how uh, important our relationship with Mexico is economically and from a security perspective. I mean, I remember when I worked in Capitol Hill, we had the um, the Merida initiative, the security agreement that we entered into. Mm-hmm. I guess that was about 10 years ago, um, which was, you know, you know really important is from a from a national security perspective and with drug trafficking and with the cartels and our cooperative agreements and so people just don't understand you know Mexico is not just some uh, third world country to our south <laughs> you know it's not it's a, it's a it's a strategic relationship that's important that we need and that's been going on for a long time and I worry that that relationship could be ruined um, because of Trump's bravado false bravado yeah. It, it absolutely is at risk if Trump uh, shuts down the border. Uh, drug enforcement cooperation is probably the first area where AMLO could, could get Trump's attention very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard from the, the new um, Mexican ambassador to the United States, uh, Ms. Barceno, last week um, at, at an event, and she very clearly said that uh, AMLO intends to abide by the provisions of the Merida initiative, um, but that could all change if Trump decides to uh, unilaterally shut the border. Um, another area is, is on the border itself. I mean, Mexico is, has complied with this unilateral United States policy, and it has set up camps along the border to house um, migrants who are waiting to have their day um, in in U.S. courts to try to prove you know, credible fear. And another area is in the USMCA. We have to remember that this agreement has been finished in terms of the negotiation phase, but it needs to be finalized right. in the domestic political situations of each three countries. So it needs to pass both the, uh, all three, the Canadian, the uh, U.S., and the Mexican Congress. And given that AMLO um, controls, uh, AMLO's party, Morena, controls a majority um, in the Mexican Congress, he could very easily decide, you know what, I'm going to revert back to my my traditional leftist position. Um, I'm not really in favor of commerce that much anyways, um, and I'm going to direct my party in the Mexican Congress to either request major changes to the USMCA or just simply not to pass it. That's very interesting. I don't think people realize that Mexico actually does have some leverage here in this. Um, But I think we would all agree that we really don't want to see it go that way. Um, If you had a magic wand in my final my final question to you as we wrap up, and I appreciate you taking the time. We've gone over a little bit, but this is such an important conversation. And there's just so I could talk to you for hours about this because it's uh, it's so multifaceted. It's fascinating to me. Um, But if you had a magic wand and you could fix this problem right now, what would be the first thing that you would do to fix what's happening, this humanitarian crisis that we see going on on the border? Um, What would be the first thing that you would do? And then the second thing, the first two things you would do to try to fix this, if you had the magic wand. Oh, wow. That's quite a position to be in. Um, (laughs) With my... 
So I would I would wave the magic wand and yeah. I would find a way to build uh, more robust and deeper democratic institutions in these three countries, um, place uh, institutions that are actually you know, accountable um, and and robust and makes people feel like you know participatory participatory democracy is 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 actually real and that you know it's results based and and that you know elections aren't corrupt and rigged, um, and, you know and along with that you can you can. Uh, you can count on greater economic development if you have institutions that aren't engaged in in crony mm-hmm. capitalism and corruption and all sorts of things. The second thing uh, is the is the security angle, um, and so you know, I'd wave my wand and uh, hopefully be able to uh, affect uh, you know, law enforcement um, reform, governance reform, um, anti-corruption efforts. Uh, two two wishes is not enough, unfortunately. To uh, no, I this, know. Uh, <laughs> this issue i think it's gonna take a genie coming out of a bottle no kidding more like more like five or ten right Um, right i always like to hear what people who you know who think about these things and work on these issues every day what they would do if they had the power to change it what would you do and um you know i i think that's instructive uh do you think that um do you think that the money that that donald trump has used in this this i call it a fake national emergency i think what he's done uh, with this is is um constitutionally precarious and sets a terrible precedent for executive overreach but do you think that taking that money uh, to build a wall is the best use of our governmental resources or should we be using that to have more um immigration judges uh, more border patrol agents you know more direct uh, services on the border. I mean, is this is is the wall the answer? And then I'll let you go. Great. Um, it's always the last question which gets you into trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say it's not a it's not an either or right um, proposition. I I, I think that um, the border can certainly be reinforced in certain sure. areas. I agree, um, especially using especially using data. Uh, to tell where um, some smuggling that's not coming in through the ports again is something important to uh, to tell to our listeners. Quite a bit of the of the drugs that come into the United States illegally comes in through a legal port of entry. That's correct. And it's hidden in a it's hidden in a truck. It's hidden in a car. It's hidden in you know some sort of uh, of a vehicle that's that's passing over the border in a creative manner. Um, we heard about this in the El Chapo trial mm-hmm. where. Um, prosecutors were talking about you know st- stashes of cocaine in uh, in tomali jars and stuff like that. I mean, the guy was uh, very creative in terms of thinking of ways to get stuff across across um, legal ports of entry. But I think we should use data to to reinforce our border in areas where we see um, and and have evidence that that trafficking is occurring, um, and especially areas where there where there isn't any barrier right now. Um, but I don't think that necessarily needs to uh, to be a barrier across the entire border. Right. Um, and then with the re- with the remaining money, I think that we can you know strengthen ports of entry, invest in in technology to try to detect these things, um, methods and mechanisms. Um, we can get more sort of drones up in the sky, more boots on the ground. Um, use what we know works, uh, and discard uh, what we believe uh, isn't working. But I, you know I think Customs and Border Patrol they have they have a good set of tools that they know work and a good set of technologies that they know work like border sensors and drones and boots on the ground. Uh, and they have a lot of data at their, at their disposal um, to be able to concentrate manpower in certain areas that they know are, are traversed, well traversed. Um, and so, you know, if I had that extra, that extra cash, that's, that's yeah. where I would put it. 
Yeah. Um, you know, use the data to find areas that uh, where you could you could build more wall uh, and and have it be effective, but not necessarily uh, coast to coast. Well, those guys down there, I've worked with Border Patrol before, and they are amazing at what they do. And um, that thin green line, as they call it, for the Border Patrol, is really strong. And I, God bless those guys. They have a tough job down there on that border every day and now with the there's some nasty groups that are operating it's true they've got their lives on the line absolutely and i think that gets lost in this debate also as well you're expecting them to be caretakers now for young kids and families and also they're supposed to be stopping drug cartels and you know the, the the bad hombres as they say that are coming over here it's a tough job so god bless the border patrol um Dr. Ryan Berg, thank you so much for your time. This is a very interesting conversation. And uh, we're unfortunately, we don't have a magic wand, so we didn't solve the world's problems today. Um, But keep up the great work. And I'm sure we'll be talking again as this as this issue continues. Great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. I love AEI. You guys are great over there. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. And hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Looking forward to it. Big thank you again to Ryan Berg from the American Enterprise Institute talking a little bit about what's going on down the border, what's next. Uh, I appreciate him for coming on this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. So that's it for us. Stay tuned uh, for next week's next week's episode. Um, I'm going to be traveling, so I think I'm finally going to get the interview with Yvette Nicole Brown <laughs> next week. So stay tuned for that. Be sure to check me out on social media. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. Send me questions at honestly underscore Tara on Twitter or at Tara Setmayer or on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Have a great week.